This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. You know, among some of the greatest scandals that have been associated with God and the Bible, um, actually one of the most scandalous is actually our God-given vocation. You and I are called to be a kingdom and priests. And can I just tell you that today that has a ring of scandal about it, Uh, in the world, not to the church, because we have somewhat become numb to it. We've said it enough times over and over again without any real thorough thought and discussion about it, uh, but just simply repeating those words, that it's kind of somewhat become an empty mantra in in many ways. But in truth, uh, and especially in that context in the first century, it was tremendously scandalous to think about a kingdom and priests. In the first century, kingdom was scandalous because the reign of man, kingdoms were all about, right? In fact, the idea of a kingdom was not in the grand sense in which you and I think of a kingdom today. Uh, Mostly, us here in the United States, when we think of kingdom, we're thinking of the great monarchy of the United Kingdom, uh, a global empire that that used to say that the sun never sets on the the great British empire. And and of course, uh, our history is one that was intertwined with that in the United States, uh, and our revolution that we fought to separate ourselves from uh, the idea of king and kingdom. Um, and so there is a, a somewhat a sense for us here in the 21st century, looking back on that, that it seems somewhat really irrelevant in many ways. And even as we look at that whole idea, we just don't really have any idea what that meant to uh, people in the first century who are surrounded by kings and kingdoms, right? I mean, when you're reading in the New Testament and you read about the kings and the kingdoms, I mean, you've got all the Herods, right? And the Herods are under, you know, are, are governing there in Palestine, but there's a greater king over them and a greater king. And there's like levels of kings and the, there's local kings, there's translocal kings, there's Caesar, king of basically the whole wide world at the time. And, and, and there's just, it doesn't really make any sense to us except simply to say this, that the the reign of man and the failure of kings was utterly loathsome reality. And yet, in the middle of that utter loathsome reality comes the proclamation that we would reign with him forever. Now, there is the one side that is hopeful in all of this is that Jesus is king, right? And, and, and he turns that kingdom over to his father. And, and so there's this sense of greater trust and something bigger than man. But then we forget, though, that and all of creation under our subjugation. Hmm. The same is true of priests. In the first century, especially to the Jews, this reeked of elitism, the ongoing abuse of the people in the name of God. They stood between God and man, 
basically using their power and position to keep them separated, to allow people access to God as they deemed, to shut out whomever they would shut out. And in the midst of that, for God to speak of us as priests, it, and I just tell you, certainly very much so, if not today, it, it sounded quite scandalous. Today, you and I live in a world where over two centuries ago, we threw off the restraints of monarchy for democracy. We traded the tyranny of one for the rule of many, only today to be asking ourselves, have we unwittingly become the victims of the collective tyranny of the many? Our forefathers, I'm certain, when they gave us republic instead of a direct democracy, were trying to protect us from that, but then even they could not foresee social media and cancel culture. As well, in Protestant tradition, there's been a lot of discussion about the priesthood of believers, but here's the truth. When we talk about the priesthood of believers, all we really mean is that we can go directly to him, that we have direct access to God. But there is no real sense of vocation on our part, no real discussion about what does it mean for you and I to be priests of God, all of us, to intercede between humanity and God. If we had ever viewed priesthood with any serious thought, it probably would come with a great deal of skepticism. I'm certain it's probably why we hardly ever preach on it. But as I pointed out last week, here's the thing. God has never shied away from things that men fear, loathe, or despise. God has taken the things of the wise and made them foolish. That which was foolish in the eyes of men becomes the wisdom of God, and the point being that Whatever man thinks of things does not, by their experience or their thoughts, put God in a box. I like that. Last week, as we talked about the cross, we pointed to the fact that God's motivation for the cross, for our rescue, was not motivated by the law. That we were perfectly capable of dying and suffering the penalty. And therefore, God's motivation was his great love for humanity, to send his one and only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So almost as scandalous as his motive for saving us was the motive for which he saved us. Let me say this clearly as possible. Do you realize that you were not saved to go to heaven? You were not saved to sit on clouds and strum harps. You were not saved to rescue you from hell. Those are benefits, the going to be with him and being rescued from hell. I'm not too sure about the clouds and harps part. But you were rescued for something, and I don't just mean relationship, because relationship is best understood as the motive, this whole thing of love. Love is a relationship. I know that we use the word precariously in loving chocolate chips, loving fast cars, loving you know things in the world, but truth 
love actually is something that is reserved. It's the verb that describes the, the nature of the relationship. You and I were rescued because of God's great love for us. But what did he save you for? If not just to go to heaven, if not to just rescue you from hell. What did he save us for? I want to take a look at three passages this morning, all from the letter called Revelation. So let me invite you to open your uh, Bible, whether app or book, and scroll down to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at three passages in Revelation this morning. If you're using phone or tablet, would you set that to silent? I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. Of course, the one in your lap is my favorite. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and we read these words. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and, think through the sentence, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then scroll down to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9, and we read these words. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what else did he do by his blood? And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And they, those who have been purchased by your blood will reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 20, scroll down toward the end there. Revelation 20 in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. It's good news. Over those who are in the first resurrection... Over such, the second death has no power. The saved. Saved for what? Because they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Now, isn't that exciting? You have a job for all eternity. You thought you were going to retire. And it's a high-powered role, isn't it? I mean, it's not just like VP or president. It's kings of the earth and priests of God. But um, <clears throat> have you ever heard of anyone getting a job that they were not qualified for? Does that bother you? Or worse yet, getting a job because of who their daddy was? You see, in, in our society, 
We speak of those things in hushed terms, don't we? We love to suggest that such a thing is a scandal, that it's, of course, primarily out of jealousy because we didn't get our share of the pie. But sometimes, sometimes in all honesty, we really do see they aren't capable. The persons really do weigh down the, the organization, the, the company, or whatever else with failures, with incompetence, and yet they never seem to get corrected or demoted, and we, we hate it. It just, just doesn't seem fair. Fair. You know, I've often said fair is not a biblical concept. It's not. It's something we ascribe to God, but what we're actually talking about, that God is just. Justice is a biblical concept, but God has never been afraid to show favor. Favor ain't fair. You know, in the very proper English. Favor ain't fair. Throughout the history of the Bible, God has shown tremendous favor. I mean, the entire Old Testament is the story of, um, well, a chosen people. And they were chosen because God chose them. Now, they chose God back, but but God chose them. Then we come to the New Testament, and, and we're introduced to Jesus, and Jesus had only 12 apostles. There was the company of the 120, but among the 120, there were the 12, and they were best qualified for the job because they had been to seminary. Uh, no. They were best qualified for the job because they had shown such prowess in leading large groups of people. No. Well, they were, they were really successful businessmen. No. What were the qualifications? They had a relationship with Jesus. See, I... Among the 120, there were 12, and even among the 12, there were the three, right? Peter, James, and John. And let's not forget that among Peter, James, and John, there was John the Beloved. Yeah. Yeah, there is favor. And when we are given favor, it's not a scandal. When we're given favor, we're given the good table because we know the owner. When we're given a discount because we're such a good customer. When we're favored, it's amazing how quickly, I don't know, that we deserve it. (laughs) But the truth is, we do love favor. And it's usually only a scandal when we don't get our piece of the pie. I mean, a few years ago, the news was full of a scandal because Hunter Biden got a job with an Ukrainian oil company. Isn't that interesting where we are right now? And that job paid millions, and we assumed it was just because of who his daddy was, and we've debated the legality of that because of the way our laws are written, but it was a scandal. And so it appears that the scandal of heaven is that we as human beings have been given a special status, a vocation a calling that even the heavenly beings, the whole unseen world, 
are in an uproar about. The fallout is that some have made themselves our enemies out of jealousy. They have aligned themselves with Lucifer. They have aligned themselves against us and against the works of God. And others have allied themselves to us as, in the words of the Scripture, ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. Either way, Peter tells us that that when they look upon these things, it is so far out of their scope and understanding why God favors us, why God chose us. Even King David mused to himself, what is man that you would be mindful of him? What is it that you have uh, spent your time, your energy? Why is it that these, of all the cre- created beings in the universe, have been proclaimed the ones that to be in your image? That Why, God, do you tarry with us? Why didn't you just wipe us out when we fell You and I have been given a calling that is so far beyond our grasp that outsizes our ability as fallen humans. Isn't that scandalous? Isn't that shocking? I mean, if you started to really think about what it means that that you and I will judge the angels... I mean, Paul asked the question whenever there was this fight going on in the church, and he, and he says, I don't understand. I've, I've heard that some of you are going to court against one another. Don't you not know that you're going to judge the angels? And you can't settle this? I remember the first time I read that, I thought to myself, wait, what? I? The church? We? Are going to judge the angels? See, just when you thought you were getting out of things. Yeah, yeah, you feel the outsizing of the calling of God on your life. We get crazy just thinking about, well, wait a minute, I'm supposed to go talk to my neighbors about Jesus? You don't understand, I can't do that. Well, yes, you can. He will be with you. That's really small in comparison to the larger calling to reign and rule with him forever. We like that part with the reign and rule, like, okay, I'm going to heaven and this great place and everything. But this whole idea of then reigning and ruling over the earth and and the whole complexity, what does it mean to be a priest of God and to, to intercede and to stand in the gap for the whole of the world? You and I are a kingdom and priests given to reign and to rule over God's good creation and to stand in the gap for those who are not and to love his creation and to stand even in the gap for it as well, according to Romans 8. And so among the things that we've been given for our inheritance are not only eternal life, to live and to reign with him forever, But then with that comes the responsibilities of royalty, of being part of the family of God. And part of our inheritance then is the lost, meaning that they are ours to intercede for, to stand in the gap for them as if they were our own, as if their lives, our calling depended on it. To love the world as God so loved the world 
simply because we too were once a part of fallen creation, and yet, though undeserving and unqualified, we were added to the family of God, made a kingdom, made priests to serve God, but to serve the world and all of creation, to intercede, to reign over, just as God would do it. Kind of a crazy concept, isn't it? Isn't it quite scandalous that God chose you? Isn't it? And in that moment, do we realize, gosh, I am way in over my head. It's no wonder that the angels in the unseen world are in an uproar. Them? Do you know how I have to, I spend my whole day picking up after these people, right? I mean, you know, they got, they're like the, the globe, they're like the, the, the maids of the universe constantly running around behind picking up after you and I, right? Cleaning up our messes, interceding, going to the Father. Did you see what they did? And you love them like that. To which of the angels did he ever give his son for their salvation? Nope, nada, none. And when you and I realize the might and the power of the angels and we understand how they're constantly doing all of these things, we we just can't help but think. They can't help but think, right? Hey, Dad, you sure set them up with a sweet position. What qualifies you and I for such a heavenly vocation? It's right there. Our vocation was purchased for us with the blood of Christ. The point is, is that our title, our vocation, our calling are directly tied to his death on the cross. And so what were you and I saved for? You were saved from death and sin, but you were saved for this role as priests and kings. And it's not something new to the New Testament. In fact, here's the thing, is the entire story of Scripture is riddled with this assignment. All the way back in Exodus 19, the promise of God was that His people would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? There was this sense of them being something unique and, and their calling and, and that their ministry to the whole world. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, the people are created and God spoke over them to rule and to reign over everything because they had been made in His image for the express purpose to rule and reign over creation. Not just the earth, but the whole of creation, including the universe and everything in it. And what Revelation is just simply doing there in those chapters is driving home the point that the picture of all of these things throughout the witness of the Scripture come to full closure, to full circle. What God started, He finishes. And, and what God is doing in us, through us, why He has saved us, why He has called us, does not end in a ticket out of here. That's actually not a biblical concept. That the biblical concept is that 
though we may sleep, that we will all rise, that we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, that there is a resurrection coming in which he will establish us as kings again over the earth, and we will reign and rule with him forever. For not only the millennia, the first one, but then also on and on forever. The apostle Paul hints at this in a couple of places. I mentioned earlier Romans 8. Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation is waiting for you and I to take our rightful place. All of creation is longing that we would step up and be the people, the kingdom people, the priests of, of God in. And so all of creation, all of creation longs for that. And creation groans together in the pains of childbirth right up to now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, do we not, as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Some mornings you groan more than others, right? As you're getting up. <laughs> if you're under 30, you'll find out what I'm talking about. For in this hope we were saved. Which hope? Not the hope of heaven. Not the hope of being saved from hell. No, in this hope. And now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is this expectation, uh, this sense of longing in which we are looking forward to the day in which we will fulfill in the ultimate sense our heavenly calling. Likewise, in the cosmology of Ephesians 1, which I just don't have time to cover this morning, but but it's, it's God's design from eternity past to present, before the foundations of the earth were poured, from present to eternity to come, that we have been favored, that we have been given a status that is outsized by our present condition, outsized by all of our failures, outsized uh, even by all of the failures of kings of men and the priests of men. And the hardest thing to grasp about it is honestly this that just as eternal life begins the moment that you believe, which is hard enough to get your head around, right? Because you and I look around at our present circumstances and the things that stress us out and the things that cause us pain. Uh, we talked this morning, even during communion, about the sense of suffering and, and our identity with suffering and that how Jesus is the one who suffers with us and that he identifies with our suffering and that in the middle of all of that, that where God has already called us to eternal life, he has also called you now to your vocation in him. 
See, we are called now to intercede for the nations, for the lost. They can't be our inheritance when it's all said and done, right? Those who perish when it's all said and done do so for eternity. It wouldn't be very, there's no profit in them being our inheritance then. They're our inheritance now. If you belong to Jesus, your inheritance is that you have been called a priest to intercede for the creation, everyone in it, everything in it, to care for it, that it's your royal obligation, and that if we don't care that you are an unfaithful priest. So it very much is an important thing for us to actually spend some energy in talking about, not just in the idea that you and I don't have to go to, to some priest that wearing robes and things like that to get to pray for us, but the idea that you and I would, as priests, not just simply go to him on our own honor and our own needs and our own wants and it being all about us, but that truly we would understand that being a priest means that you're interceding for others, that the first call on us, our first vocation is that we would intercede for all of creation. And so when I say intercede, I don't only mean prayer, although that's certainly a huge part of it, but it means coming into the same kind of priestly fashion of Jesus in which we literally lay down our lives for the sake of the world. Now, listen, you can't die for the sins of the world. That's already been done. That part of the job's already done. But you can die to yourself for the sake of others. I mean, no greater love has any man than to lay down his life for his friends. You and I, in the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, can be living sacrifices for the sake of the world. Uh, we can heed the words of 1 Peter chapter 2 when it speaks about being a royal priesthood. And as Peter said, by abstaining from the passions of our flesh, i.e. dying to self, and then conduct ourselves in an honorable manner so that people see our good deeds and praise God that we become then a witness by the way that we live our lives, that we become an intercession by the way that we live our lives, that the whole world is looking to us. And yes, the whole world does have a right to look on us and to judge us. Stop the lie that says you don't have any right. We quote to the world the passage, judge not lest you be judged, but you know what? That's not for the world. Actually, the world is invited by Jesus to judge us whether or not we're the real deal. It's what we're supposed to do is stop judging one another, to admonish one another, to, to, to not be mean-spirited in our judgments, but to encourage, to, uh, to help people grow. And, and if they are walking in the wrong direction and they will not heed, that we continue to treat them as if they were a lost person, a tax collector, or a sinner, not that we discourage them, browbeat them, shove them out of our lives, 
have contempt for them, none of those things which are in the Scripture, but instead that our job then is the ministry of reconciliation, of restoring them, of, of seeking after them, that our whole job is one of ministry of reconciliation, of restoring, of interceding for the world, and this whole idea that no, it is not pleasing and it is not acceptable to you and I that they just perish and go to hell because, well, you can just go to hell but in this deep abiding sense that as priests of God, we think to ourselves, it is ours to lay down our lives for the sake of that world, and for the sake of that errant believer who has gone their own way, not to run them off, not to be tired of them. Trust me, I'm preaching to myself Three times in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says to us about our vocation. Verse 18, and all of this is from God who, inter who through Christ reconciled us to himself and priestly vocation gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and priestly function, entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Verse 21, and for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, can I just point out that usually when we get to that part of the passage that we read something else entirely into that last part. We read to become the righteousness of God and what we read is our status. And we go, yeah, that's my status. I'm, everything's okay now. It's just me and Jesus. And, and, but what he's not, he's not referring to our imputed righteousness. He's talking about that which we embody with the faithfulness to our creator and to his creation through our actions. We could read it this way, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the demonstration of covenant faithfulness, priestly function. And that whole section, verses 18 to 21, is talking about fulfilling that priestly, that royal function right here in the now. The scandal is that though we do not feel ready, though we do not see in ourselves the capacity or the capability that God says it's so, that he has given you a place, an authority, and he has gifted you and he has given you his spirit, and that the only thing now that stands between real scandal and, real, and just that sense of favor is whether or not you rise to the occasion, right? whether you and I would call God a liar and say, I can't. Or we would reject our calling, I won't. Or we say, God, I don't know how, except this, I know that you gave it to me and that by your spirit, you have given me everything I need to do this job. You've already factored in what I don't know, what I can't know. You've already factored in my stupidity, my lack of grace, my lack of, uh, of ingenuity and everything else. You factored all those things in and yet you still called me to this place. And so, yes, Lord, 
I will rise to the occasion by your authority, by your power at work in me, because you, because why, uh, Philippians, I can do all things. Let's make a right application of that scripture instead of taking it to the gym, okay? Right application. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean that I can find the best parking place. It doesn't mean that I can uh, get my letters written today or, or, or whatever else. No, the real essence of that passage, that I can fulfill the calling that God has on my life because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me And so I step away from all of the nonsensical statements of no, I can't, I'm not able, or whatever else, and I say, yes, Lord, whatever you want to do in me, have your way. Scandal. The only way it's a scandal is if you refuse. The only way it's a scandal is if you refuse to rise up and to fulfill the calling that's on you. Now, you're right. We didn't deserve it. It's a pretty sweet job. Are you ready? I hear that the pay and the benefits package are heavenly. Hunter Biden's got nothing on you. Let's stand. So since you and I belong to Jesus, we then are priests and kings. Wow. But unlike the priest and the kings of the world, position and power are not ours to wield to enjoy privilege, but instead they confer on us an a sense of obligation, that God's favoritism, unlike the favoritism of the world, does not simply mean to be chosen to benefit, but it means to be called to minister in this world to the day in which you and I will be dismissed from this part of our calling and embrace the next segment of our calling. And one day, And one day we will find ourselves judging the world. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we're called upon to judge, when we judge, to be careful that we judge only in the way that we ourselves would want to be judged. And so there's this sense in which, like, I don't know about you, but mercy, I I find myself constantly wanting to extend mercy because I want to be Extended mercy, amen? Amen. Here we find ourselves where it is our responsibility to live holy lives. It's our responsibility to pray for the lost. It's our our, our, our responsibility to intercede, to stand in the gap, to stand between God and his creation and cry out for that creation. It's the vocation that he's given us. It's his great joy for us to be, his, to be those priests. It's his great joy for us to intercede for the world. It's his great joy for you and I to pray for and, and to love the world the way that he loves the world. In fact, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, one of the things he says is, Father, I, I so want for them to love the Father the way the Son loves the Father. 
and the way the Father loves the Son. I want them to love the Son. I don't think Jesus prayed a frivolous prayer, an empty prayer. I think he prayed something that is quite concrete and real, that you and I, by the power of the Spirit of God within us, could love the Father the way Jesus loves the Father, that you and I could love the Son the way the Father loves the Son. It's his prayer for us. It's his prayer for us to be in this place of loving the world the way the God so loved the world. I don't think any of those things are empty prayers. They are our calling. And so when you and I think about what it means to belong to Jesus, can I just say, listen, there's nothing more important. It's not about going to heaven. It's not about escaping. It really isn't. We've for too long made that the primary focus, and it has not done us any good. It's certainly not been fruitful in the Americas. But where the the continual sense has been, this sense of calling, that that my being uh, brought into this relationship with God, uh, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that then there is this deep sense of, of longing and desire to see the nations know the same peace, to know the same healing, to, to pray that, that every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, like we're talking about there in Revelation, uh, that they would be added to the people of of God, that our desire for all of creation to, to know this that which we have come to know, for us to be ministers of reconciliation in the world in which we live. And so I, here's my question, are you, are you still glad you signed up? I know for many of us that that was kind of the selling point, not going to hell. And I'm not denying that. I don't know of anybody who's like going, woohoo, let's go to hell. Not even the people who say like, oh, I'm going to go and take over. Yeah. It's a cute retort. It's empty. But the great reality is this. You were saved for a purpose. There is intention in what God did. And as much as he loves you, it wasn't just because he loves you and it wasn't just because uh, he wanted you not to go to hell, but he wanted you to be a kingdom and priests. That's why he shed his blood. And I can't think of a better reason why we would step up to the plate. He shed his blood so that you could be. I don't know about you, but that's, that makes me wonder how could I How could I discount? How could I ignore so great a calling that he was willing to pay that kind of price? So I'm going to ask prayer team, go ahead and come on up. And if this morning that that's just kind of like piling in on you, that, that sense of revelation, of awareness, right? This morning that like he called me, but he didn't just call me in a, in, a, in a bigger sense of just kind of theoretically or whatever, but that he shed his blood so that I would be a priest 
and a king. That for the sake of the whole world, for the sake of all of creation, he's called me to this place. And I've never really fully understood what it means to fulfill that calling. And can I just invite you this morning to come get some prayer? You would just simply say this morning, God, as I understand my vocation and the price you paid for me to have it, I will not dismiss it. I will not just treat it with contempt. I will not treat it as something that I just get around to, but I would recognize for this that we were saved. And then you would ally yourself to the work of the Father, that you would agree with him that it is good, that it is a high and noble calling, and that you would give yourself your job, your life, your resources, your all to this calling. Father, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus. And we have often, over the years, heard powerful preaching on what Jesus did in dying on the cross for us to rescue us. But we have literally left out half of the equation. And so, Father, today as we embrace the second half of the equation that we were not only saved from, but we were saved for, we pray that you would... There would be a, a holy stirring, a deep and passionate stirring from within that says, I will honor, I will honor the blood of the sacrifice of the covenant. I will be faithful to the covenant and fulfill the calling that you have put on my life this day. I will begin to walk in and and I will hold to, cling to, give my life to this calling. For the sake of my king, his kingdom, and the blood that he shed for it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.